You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Bibles. Once again, that's Revelation 11, verses 1 through 19. If you would please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, This is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and saints, 
And those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here, and if you're new, uh, glad you're here. Um, we're looking at the book of Revelation, and we're doing that during Advent because Advent is a season where we're waiting for uh, the coming of the Messiah, just as the Israelites waited for his first coming. Um, that's what we're celebrating at Christmas, is the waiting, the Israelites waiting for, O come, O come, Emmanuel, to ransom captive Israel. And now we are waiting also like they were, but we're waiting for him to come back. So that's what Revelation is all about, the waiting for Jesus to come back. It's not a scary book primarily. I mean, there are things in it, like this passage, that are very strange. You know, lest you think I've been cherry-picking the easy passages, I decided I can go for, like, the hardest of all. Like, the two witnesses is known by commentaries to be the, the most difficult passage in Revelation. Um, so it's a very strange passage. Um, but the main point of Revelation is that Jesus wins, that love wins, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever in love, in the perfect love of the Father for the Son. So that's what Revelation's about. And um, we just have to be careful about getting bogged down uh, in the details of the book. Um, it is meant to give us a longing for our home. I mean, John wrote this to, he's in exile on this island of Patmos, a penal colony of Rome, and he's like my age with a pickaxe. And uh, he is given these revelations from God to send to his churches who are also being persecuted in this tribulation where Rome, Nero is, the, is Caesar in 65 AD, and Rome is persecuting these churches. And so John is sending these, this letter to them to encourage them to wait and don't give up. And uh, he's trying to stir their longing for their true home, which is not here. And um, C.S. Lewis describes joy as the, the stab or the pang of inconsolable longing for the scent of a flower we have never smelled or the echo of a tune we've never heard or a city that we've never visited. That we're longing for this thing that we've never actually experienced. Some of our greatest moments in life when we've heard uh, songs or been on trips, we've thought that we've tasted that and we fell in love with somebody. We thought that was it, but we're, that was never it. It was always pointing to this home. And so uh, Jesus comes to his best friend, John. He lays his right hand on him. He says, don't be afraid. Uh, I'm going to get you there. And in the meantime, here are, here are these beautiful canvases of my, uh, my new kingdom. So I keep saying that uh, it's like Jesus brings John into the Sistine Chapel, this gigantic room with these huge canvases by Michelangelo. And on the one side, you have John's current tribulations that he's going through. That's what the tribulation means in Revelation, is what they're experiencing right then. Uh, and to some extent, us today, too. We're always in this time of tribulation. Uh, but that's on one wall. And during that time, these trumpets are blowing. Uh, God is sending plagues. He's warning the world to repent, to come back to him. So that's, he's waiting for more and more people to return to him. Uh, during this time of tribulation. So that's on one wall. That's the present reality. But on the other wall is this huge painting of his of home and uh, the new creation. And actually, Revelation is like a ballad 
um, with a chorus uh, that goes se- at seven times. Uh, it, it cycles through. So it's actually Jesus comes back multiple times in the book of Revelation. It's not linear. It's cyclical. Um, and so this is, we've already seen a, a couple of these paintings of the new creation. And this is, uh, I love this one because this is, this is where uh, Handel's Messiah comes from. Uh, and he will reign forever and ever. Um, that, the Hallelujah Chorus comes from this passage. And uh, it's, I absolutely love this, this witness to the regime change when the empire uh, becomes the kingdom. Uh, when the empire falls completely, which it is not done yet, um, lest you wondered, it's, the empire is still alive and well in our midst. The beast that rises from the sea, uh, the beast on the land, uh, the empire is, is all, it was just like Rome, it's still there today. It's not, um, it's not a government, it's not a physical thing, it is a spiritual reality that Nero embodied in his day. The principalities and powers, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities. Spiritual forces of evil in high places. So during this tribulation, uh, where the empire is still uh, having its way, as it is today, John just keeps saying, look, uh, look at the new creation. This is all going to fall, and Jesus will reign. So I want to look at first this parable of these two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, who they, they're based on loosely. Um, I mean, there's a lot I don't understand, obviously, about this passage. Uh, who could? But the best commentaries I read say that it is a, the witnesses are a picture of the church, of John's seven churches who are witnessing uh, in western Turkey, and of John who's witnessing on the island of Patmos, and Moses and Elijah are used as a kind of a parable for, um, for the witnessing that's going on now today with us too. So this is a call to us to be witnesses to the new creation. And uh, I want to look at that first, the witness of the church today during the time of tribulation. And then I want to look at this beautiful depiction of the kingdoms of this world uh, becoming the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Um, first of all, he measures the temple. This is really important. The temple is, um, is not a physical temple. The temple is the, the church is described as a temple over and over again. It's one of Paul's favorite ways of describing we're the living stones in a living temple, which is the body of Christ. So when, when God is measuring the temple here in verse 1, um, he is, he's measuring things to make sure they're right, that everything's plumb, that everything is uh, 90 degree angles, it's sound, it's architecturally sound. And so he's measuring things to show that the church is secure, it's right, it's justified, it's been set right by the blood of Christ. And so before we witness um, you know, picture a stonemason with uh, measuring tape and, like, nodding approval. The temple is good. It's sound. And that, that comes first so that we have security as we think about the rest of the, the story of these two witnesses. Um, but the basis of our witness, like, hear this, is very important. The basis of our witness as Christians is not anxiety. It is not uh, to perform, to get enough notches in our belt. Uh, to um, be seen as a great evangelist, um, to prove that we're Christians. It is out of our justification already, our security in Christ. As a measured and approved temple, we witness out of that. I heard a, a pastor, someone was telling me other pastor, who said, he said to the congregation, I question your relationship with Jesus if you're not evangelizing. 
And I, I think I know what he meant by that, which is that if you really love Christ, out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth will speak. I think that's what he meant by that. But if you take that literally, it's actually going to create a huge amount of anxiety. That you've got to go out there and make the sell and close the deal. You know, what can I do right now to get you in this car? It's going to create like a salesman mentality. We've got to meet a quota, and it's going to get ugly and manipulative. And as an, an atheist, I was on the other side of that, and it's really, really a terrible thing when Christians are evangelizing in that way. Because they're insecure, and they're trying to be approved and measured and shown to be right. But if we witness as a family of people who are sinful, but justified by God, set right, measured, and said, you're good, um, then that's going to be a really different kind of witness. For one thing, it's going to come out of a family. It's going to come out of a group, a community of people. Um, and we see that there are two witnesses here in verse 3. It's really important that there's two. Uh, because, you know, one witness, if somebody says, I witnessed this thing, um, you might not believe them if they're alone. Like a, a witness to a crime scene is not entirely believable if there's just one. But if there's two, that like doesn't just double the strength of the testimony 10 times. Like so much stronger to have two. So two witnesses establish this authority. And when the world sees several of us believers um, living out of that security, that justification, uh, that's really telling. When the world sees um, a community of people inviting them into their life as secure people, um, that's, that is what is really convincing to the world. Uh, it's, the, it's the communal witness. I know a guy, I was talking to a guy at a wedding um, just about a month ago, month and a half ago, and he said, uh, I, I was uh, not a Christian. Um, I, I got dragged to this house uh, of all these Christians at, in, at Wake Forest, and um, just kind of found myself living there. He didn't really want to be awake, um, but he saw this community that was just really different from anything he had seen in the typical culture of Wake Forest. Uh, it was, it's just the fact that it was so countercultural. It was like avant-garde. It's this radically different community where these guys were more hopeful. Uh, they, were, they were encouraging. They weren't like tearing people down or mocking people. They were really real. It wasn't just appearances. They were not fake. They were not uh, depressing or cynical or sarcastic or mocking. And so my friend said, what makes y'all so different? And they basically said, you know, we, we, it's not really us. Like, we've been set on fire by God, by this love that's not us. And that's what makes us different. I mean, these, the two witnesses uh, describes fire coming from their mouth in verse 5. I think that's a, an allusion to Elijah who brought down fire. But it's also the fire of love. It's the fire that makes us different. Um, we live amongst a consuming fire, and so we have to be a different kind of people. Uh, fire pours out of their mouth. And so it's the fire uh, that burned away the, uh, the exclusion and the hierarchy and the put-downs and the appearances and the boasting and the lust and the greed that my friends saw at Wake Forest. And that fire just burned that out of this community, or at least was burning. Not that they were flawless, but he saw a difference. And the, the, the church has to be so countercultural that it's almost like disruptive. It should, if it's doing its job, it's going to be disruptive. And people, uh, the empire is going to notice. I mean, if, if, if the church is really witnessing well, uh, the empire is going to notice that and not going to like that. It says in verse 7, when the, when the witnesses were testifying to the reality of Christ, uh, to the presence of the kingdom, 
uh, to the future reign of Christ, the beast rose from the bottomless pit to kill them. Now, the beast is not going to be fully described until chapters 13 and 14. And the beast is this combination of, uh, there is the, the, the sea beast, which is like um, the military power of an empire. The land beast is this uh, religious propaganda that props up the sea beast. And then there's a, a prostitute who rides on the beasts that is like the economy. And so all these things together, the military, the propaganda machine, the economy, that's the beast. It's like the empire. Um, and again, it's always existed over the world. Um, it's, it's not like one country or something like that. It's just, it's the way the world works. And the beast is so disturbed, uh, like when Bilbo goes into the, the dragon's lair in The Hobbit and the great dragon Smog senses the smell of a hobbit and he rises up out of his lair. That's like the, the beast has been aroused by the presence of the kingdom and uh, it's disruptive. Um, these are the nations in verse 18 that are raging. They're raging against the Lord. This, it's like a worldwide conspiracy of the nation, the leaders of the nations against the Lord. And that's what the beast is. And, you know, when Jesus came and spoke, uh, nobody ever yawned. Nobody ever just said, well, I'll take it, I'll take it or leave it. Like, like, no, no big deal. People either, they bowed to him or they wanted to kill him. And the people who wanted to kill him were mostly religious authorities. Rome, to some extent, but mostly religious authorities were the ones that wanted to kill him, which is why John says in verse 8 that the, the great city that crucified the Lord is the city in which this happened. Um, because he's saying that his religious power-hungry leaders, like pastors, uh, that are the ones that try to control people and that do not like the, the disruptive witness of the kingdom. And when, um, when, when the church witnesses to the reign of one who is more powerful than any other religious leader, uh, they, they are angry and they kill him. They kill Jesus and they kill these uh, two witnesses. So they're dead. Um, and not only, are they, not only did they kill them, they exchange presents. They have like a Christmas uh, unwrapping ceremony, that these nations, because they're so excited that the witnesses are dead. Which kind of will get into the second part of the sermon, but you know, the, the, the diagnosis of the human heart here is it's, it's pretty bad. Like the way we're described, the humans are described here. Um, one thing about coming to the Bible is you've got to like reckon on that description of the human heart. That there is something in us that is so angry by being called out on our sin that we would rejoice to see uh, the person being called out like destroyed. We would, we would rejoice in that. They exchange gifts because they're so glad the witnesses are dead. But, but violence cannot kill the truth. It, the violence can't kill the witness. And so it says in verse 11, metaphorically, God's breath of life enters them and lifts them up. And they ascend to reign because the witness is too strong. In fact, the suffering, you know, trying to stamp out the witness uh, never, ever works. The blood of the martyrs are the seeds of the church. And, and the communist China has found this out, much to their dismay. When they tried to kill all the Christians and persecute them, it's actually just made the church grow stronger. And so the stamping out the witness by the empire here has just made the fire brighter. So in verse 13, the, the people who murdered the witness were amazed by the way they died, something about the way they died uh, in, with love, uh, continuing to love them without rancor, without anger, without malice, without resentment, 
Something about the way they, they died uh, caused even the murderers to give glory to God and to be converted, at least some of them. Because the willingness to suffer for love um, is the thing that really makes the witness shine. That's when it's really hard to deny there's something real. When someone sees you loving them to the point of suffering, especially if they've hurt you, that's really hard. That's really hard to deny. When I first uh, met my wife, Margie, uh, in London, uh, I was an atheist. I was very intrigued by her faith. She was very smart. She was very clever and witty, and so she would kind of pierce a lot of my bad arguments uh, against the existence of God. And I was very intrigued by her wit and, and her intelligence, um, but it wasn't yet compelling. What was the thing that made it compelling was when I heard about the way she suffered and the way that she got through her suffering by her faith and the way that she suffered well because of that faith. And when I realized that there was this thing in her that gave her like the strength of steel uh, in, her, in her soul, to, to walk through suffering with confidence, with hope, uh, with joy and love still, that's when I realized there's this source of radiance that is real. Uh, and it is that love of the Father's love for the Son that comes through the Spirit to us. When people see that, like the witness is undeniable. And so um, that is what we're called to do as a community, to be witnesses the way these two witnesses were. And uh, especially when we suffer for that witness, it's really compelling. So that's the first point. Um, the second point is the thing that we're pointing to, which is this, um, this beautiful Messiah, King of the world, uh, the Prince of Peace, the humble one, the one uh, we sang that song about the animals bringing um, him their gifts. I mean, that baby, that's the one, that's who's going to come back and rule the world. Uh, so we're going to, the witnesses to this regime change from the empire to the kingdom. And um, again, verse 15, I wish I could sing it. Uh, the kingdoms of this world, that's the beast, that's the empire, have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. There's a reason that Handel decided to go with that, it's to be the centerpiece of the Messiah. It's like if you love the Lord of the Rings, when... Mount Doom falls, Sauron falls, the Ring of Power is destroyed, and then Aragorn uh, is crowned king. It's that regime change. Like, everything in Middle-earth is changed now. And that's, that's the transfer of power that we're looking at in that giant 70-foot canvas that Jesus is painting here. Uh, it's the regime change. And um, it's bigger than, obviously, even going from Obama to Trump, which was jarring, and then Trump to Biden, which was jarring, and then Biden to whatever's next. We don't know, maybe Biden again, but these are nothing. Like, they're, those were cataclysms in our country's life, but um, there's going to be no debates, there's going to be no recounts, and no storming of any capitals. He's going to seize the dragon in verse uh, 2 of Revelation 20. Uh, there's not going to be a vote. He's going to seize the dragon who is the lead of the empire, the head of the empire. Uh, he's going to cut off the head of the snake. He's going to bind the dragon for a thousand years, not a literal thousand years in the future, but now. It says now we're in the thousand years because the devil is bound and his ability to deceive people has is, is gone away quite a bit. So we are in this time when he has seized the dragon. He has bound him for a thousand years. He's thrown him in a pit. He shut it up and he sealed it. And um, that is what happened when Jesus 
began to reign at the Ascension in 33 AD. But what we see in verse 15 is what completes that process. So we're still in a thousand years between the time when he sees the dragon, he bound him, he shut him up, but that dragon's still alive. He's just on a chain. But at some point, what started at the ascension will be completed at this moment, where the kings of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And there are 11 verbs here in the aorist tense, which is past, perfect, completed. So it's like when CNN calls the election, you know, after maybe Pennsylvania goes blue, it's like, okay, it's over now. Even though the votes have not all come in, they call the election, this is over. This war between the empire and the kingdom, it is over, and Jesus will win, and we know that, and we're in that time right now. And that just makes our witness more powerful to keep saying that, uh, that Jesus has and he is and he will keep ushering in the reign uh, of increasing global peace. I mean, if you look at it, if you know history at all, uh, since he came, the world has been turned upside down. Just, just take one metric, human rights. I mean, there was no such thing at all at his day, not at all. And why, did that, why are there human rights? It's because of Christianity. It's because of his reign. It's because of the kingdom that's gone viral. And, you know, to know that uh, we have this king that is doing this right now as we speak, he has bound uh, the devil, uh, he is spreading his reign. Uh, to know that will help us fight for peace and justice without relying on the government, which we never should have done anyway. Like, you can use the government, that's great. Uh, government's a great thing to use, but do not rely on Uncle Sam to bring the Prince of Peace. Like, the Prince of Peace is the one who is working, and Sam, Uncle Sam may or may not get along uh, for the ride. But Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says, uh, He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. And I love this, of the increase of his government and reign, there will be no end. So not just that when he's born, uh, he will have a government that will keep going. It's exponential. Of the, increase, of the increase of his government and reign, there'll be no end. So it's not just like this. It is exponential. Of the increase of his reign and his peace, there will be no end. And that's where we're heading. This is the great, this is a, it's written as a, a poem. It's a song that's being sung by all, all uh, the elders and the, and the angels and the archangels and the four living creatures are singing this song. It's a poem. It's a song. And that's where we're heading. Um, that is the destiny to which the world is going. Now, will everyone get there? No. No, everyone will not get there. Um, and that's very clear in this passage. Uh, a child asked me about a year ago, uh, if God loves everyone, then why doesn't everyone go to heaven? And just, it's a, such a simple question, and it's such a powerful question. And it demands an answer. And I, and I said to him, I'm not obviously sure at all. I'm not completely sure. Like, the Bible says both things. I don't, know how it, I don't know how it all works out, but I do know this, and I quoted this verse to him. To have a heaven, there cannot be a destroyer there. Anyone who is addicted to destruction and that would want to exchange gifts and have a party because the witnesses have been killed cannot be there or it would not be heaven. If you have people who are absolutely dedicated to destruction, like 100% dedicated to destroying things and just breaking things, then it could not be heaven if they were there. Uh, verse 18 says, there must be a time to come where at some point the lamb will come back and say, the destroyers of the earth must be destroyed. That's why the flood happened, is because we had so destroyed, raped and pillaged the earth so much, so much carnage that God with great sadness 
with his broken heart, he cleaned the world. And that's what happens here. You know, the Pharaoh was warned many times, let my people go. Let my people go. And God was willing to forgive him every time. He wouldn't do it. He, he acted like he was going to do it, then he hardened his heart. And he acted like he'd do it, and he'd harden his heart over and over and over, so many times. And eventually, when Israel got away, um, he still kept coming after them. You know, he came after them with his chariots. And, and when he was drowned in the Red Sea, um, what else was God supposed to do? I mean, this man was going to destroy. He was so bent on genocide and slavery that he would have done anything to kill these people. And you can imagine a little Israelite girl on the other side of that sea as the, wa the water closes in over those horses and chariots of the Egyptians, and she, uh, she is thrilled. Like, for the first time in her whole life, she's felt security and peace. And it's like the Terminator, if you've seen that movie, where uh, the, t the first Terminator was Schwarzenegger, and he's coming after uh, this woman who's going to give birth to the Messiah, Sarah Connor. And um, Arnold Schwarzenegger turns out to be a robot, and so, like, he gets caught in a fire, his skin melts away, his legs get blown off, his head is crushed. Ultimately, all you have is a torso and a hand that are just like going like this, just trying to, and it just keeps coming for Sarah Connor. And it will not stop coming for Sarah Connor. And that's what God eventually has to destroy. And he does get flattened eventually um, in a press. But it's not just Pharaoh and it's not just the Terminator. This is in the human heart. So be warned. Like there is a way. And if you don't believe this, read this book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, that there is a destructiveness in all of us, a self-destructiveness, a desire to destroy others, suicidal tendencies, just these propensities we have for destruction that must be gotten rid of. Our, our heaven will not even make sense. In fact, these people in The Great Divorce would rather go back to hell and reign in hell than to serve in heaven. That's the whole premise of the book. I didn't really believe in hell until I read that book. And I was like, okay, it makes sense. You can get so obsessed with alcohol or anger or food or romance or children or money or career that you will not give those things up. And you would rather have that than be with God. So in order for the Prince of Peace to reign, uh, he's got to destroy the empire and all who cling to the empire. Um, but the good news is that judgment is not the end of the story. Judgment is not the end of the story. The end of the story is verse 19 where it says God's heavenly temple was opened. So this is like the heart of the church. The church opens up, and at the very heart of the church, I saw the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, not Noah's Ark. This is Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is the Ark that the Nazis tried to weaponize in that movie uh, to kind of fight the allies. Um, they, they wanted to use the Israel's object of their holy war, which is the Ark of the Covenant, and the Nazis wanted to use that in Raiders of the Lost Ark to destroy the allies. So they tried to weaponize the Ark. The problem was that the ark is so utterly holy that when the Nazis try to weaponize it, it actually melts their faces off. And like, they, the unholy ones, are destroyed by the ark. So this is the ark uh, that is so holy. It's the holiest place on earth because it is the center of the Holy of Holies, which is the center of the temple, which is the navel from the earth connecting God. And so the ark of the covenant is the, the point of the Holy of Holies. And between the two, you know, it's like as big as, you know, this podium here. And the between, there's these two giant cherubim that are carved in gold. And right in the middle of that point where the two wings almost hit, that is the most holy place. That's called uh, the, the throne of Yahweh, where he reigns on the cherubim. And the holiness um, 
is just incinerates anything there. He's a consuming fire. But also that place where the, the two tips of their wings meet, that's called the mercy seat. It's called the mercy seat, which is this crazy paradox that the place that is the holiest place on earth, where it says in verse 19, there's flashes of lightning, there's peals of thunder, there's earthquake, there's heavy hail. It's a firestorm that's just absolutely incinerating. But that place is described as the mercy seat, which is a, a word that is often used of Jesus in the, in the writings of Paul. Because we know that uh, Jesus walked into that firestorm for us. It's like the Soviet soldiers going into Chernobyl to cleanse that place, and they themselves destroyed. Jesus goes into the most holy place, the mercy seat, and he, 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 be, he becomes sin for us. He is annihilated for us so that we can, in him, be in that presence of God's perfect holiness and can enjoy uh, the eternal reign of Christ. And this table is, is like the new mercy seat. This is like the Ark of the Covenant, where it is incredibly holy. Like, there's something real going on here. This is not a symbol. Uh, this, there should almost be like that nuclear uh, sign in front of it, you know, warning. Like, this, there's something real going on here. This is where Yahweh is enthroned. But it, it is a witness to a family of lavishly loved sinners, people who are not holy, where we're not only not destroyed here, we're actually blessed. Like this perfectly holy God is blessing sinful people beyond their wildest dreams who are coming up to his table. I once served communion to a guy uh, who was destroying his wife's life, just absolutely destroying his wife's life. And when I saw him, it was really hard for me to put that bread in his hands. It's like, this guy is uh, so destructive. How can I bless him in the middle of his destructiveness? Like, how could that be right? Well, first of all, it's not about me blessing him. But I just thought, wait a minute, that's the whole point, is that everyone that comes down here is just in the middle of this kind of destructiveness. And yet, like, if I can serve myself or have someone serve me that bread, then I can serve it to him, too. Because we all come down here as sinners. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, set right by his grace as a gift through the mercy seat, literally, through the mercy seat of Jesus Christ. And so the destroyers like us can come here and actually be blessed by God. And so on the night he was betrayed, and the night that he uh, was incinerated by it, uh, he was destroyed by it, he willingly entered into that place, the, the most holy place, and uh, he who knew no sin became for us sin, he became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you, do this in memory of me. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. So whenever we eat the bread and drink from the cup, um, we are enacting, we're not just uh, symbolizing, we're actually enacting um, the presence of the, the gospel of uh, the father who's loved his son eternally, sending him into the world uh, to take all of our sin into himself and bring us back into this 
incredible power of love between the Father and the Son. That's what we're being drawn into. That's what's up here right now. And that's, you're all welcome to come to it. He welcomes everybody to come. But he also says, like, just know what's really going on here. It's not to be taken lightly. Um, the only qualification really is that you know you're, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And you just put your hands out like this and say, I need, I need this. Uh, I need this power. So um, if you do come down here, just come out, come down with humility. Um, come down knowing that you need to be saved. Uh, Father, I pray that right now you would be um, just communing with everyone here, uh, whether they come or not, and letting them know that you love them. And uh, I pray that um, even if somebody doesn't come down, they would see the, the evidence of your love uh, in this drama that we're enacting tonight. And um, that the, the suffering of the Lamb of God, the baby born, um, the, the uh, willingness to do that gladly for us, to bless us, that that would be really striking and um, disruptive. And I pray that, um, yeah, you would, you would give us all um, a profound experience of your love as we take this meal. Uh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So those who are serving with us up here, um, while they're doing that, Remember, we love these rascals.